So just some context about, before we begin the series, some context for First Thessalonians. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy came to Thessalonica from the road um, from Philippi. So right after <laughs> leaving from Philippi, which you would have heard Tevin preach about, they would have come to Thessalonica. After they were shamefully treated as, according to um, Acts 2.2, it records in Acts 17.2 that Paul would have preached and debated in the synagogues for three successive Sabbaths. And the Jews um, didn't really like that, so they had animosity, would have caused a row, and many of the Christians at Thessalonica were persecuted. Afterwards, Paul and his compatriots were whisked away, and they went to Berea. Just a few things of note. One of the things that we should think about is one that this is one of the earliest letters. Um, I think the only one that may be as old or um, probably a little older, would be, I think, is Galatians. But this is said to be one of the earliest, probably the first letter that was written, which was about 50 to 51 AD. And Paul was only there for a few months. He wasn't there for a long period of time. And this was written, I believe, in Corinth. The overarching principles and things that are spoken about in 1 Thessalonians concerns our understanding of the gospel and the implications for daily living. Um, the first chapter succinctly covers this in a short fashion, speaking about the character of the apostles and his companions, the love, faith, and hope of the Thessalonians, and how they should continue in these things more and more. 1 Thessalonians also deals with the coming and the day of the Lord. But for our purposes today, looking at chapter 1, the big idea we'll be focusing on is how our church should respond to the gospel as the Thessalonians did. How our church should respond to the gospel as the Thessalonians did. And this is for the purpose of us modeling this exemplary response. And we need to understand that although all the churches obviously that we see letters written to or were written from would have received the gospel and repented of their sins, not all responses were considered exemplary. So keep this in mind as well. Something else that I want us to, to think about is that when I preach this sermon, I don't want us to think about it simply as individuals, although many times as we hear the word, it comes as individuals. You can't hear what's going on in Tevin's mind or Sabbath's mind, the pastor's mind. But when we hear the sermon, recognize that this is to the church. I want us to think of how we are accountable to one another to see that this exemplary response is seen in each other. It's not just about me as an individual, but my accountability and my responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ who are next to us to be this. We'll accomplish this in two ways. First of all, we're going to look at how salvation comes. This is a subordinate but fundamental point. This is not going to be the main thrust of the sermon, but in order to understand any of this, what the response is, we need to, we need to understand what we're responding to. So how salvation comes to us. And secondly, we're going to look at the exemplary response. So let's begin with the first point. How salvation comes to us. It says in chapter 1, um, speaking about how we are in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does this mean to be in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Three things we're going to be looking at is how the Father chooses the resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he delivers us. And finally, the power of the gospel through the Holy Spirit. The first one is looking at chapter 1, verses 4. You can look at verses 4 with me, which says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We would have heard this sermon preached to us before um, when Pastor would have first come. I think he would have looked at Ephesians chapter 1, which spoke about our election, which spoke about God predestining us for salvation because God loved us. The Thessalonian church would have understood, would have been blessed by the truth 
this glorious truth that we will be looking at <laughs> coming soon, actually, at the conference of God's sovereign election of the believers. They had confidence that God's word would be fulfilled, not because of their own workings, but because of the sovereign word of God to save them. Secondly, Jesus delivered them, and they looked to Jesus to deliver them from the wrath to come as seen in chapter, in verses 10. You look at the latter part where it says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the gospel that we would have heard this morning from the pastor, that we were delivered from something, namely the wrath of God. We as believers were all sinners, are all sinners, and Christ Jesus died for our sins. This is to motivate us to live a life changed and not towards ourselves, but to Christ. Christ died for your sins. This is something that should cause us to be moved in our hearts to glorify him, to live a life not centered on our own desires and hopes and dreams, but centered upon him. Lastly, in this part, the gospel as a power of God through the Holy Spirit. The reason that this word of God, this gospel, was efficacious towards them wasn't because of the eloquence of the preacher. It wasn't because of the intellectuality of the persons who heard it. It wasn't because of the moralism of those who heard it. It wasn't that they were better or smarter than the ones around them. But the Holy Spirit had to change the hearts of those who heard the gospel to be changed. It came in power. That is why the Thessalonians could be saved. That is why the Thessalonians could respond to the gospel in the first instance because of the power of the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. I don't want to belabor this point because, as I said, it's a subordinate. But I want us to, to hear the gospel again. I want us to hear the gospel that the Thessalonians would have responded to. Hear the gospel that Paul would have preached to them, that they would have responded to. That they are sinners in the hands of a wrathful God, as it were, according to Edwards. But that there is grace and that there is hope through Jesus Christ alone. I'm not sure what comes to mind in your hearts when you hear it because... Many of us here profess to be Christians or believe ourselves to be saved, but we often forget the gospel. Is it contrition that we feel? Is it a brokenness in our hearts forgetting the gospel? Is it joy that we feel as we hear are reminded of the gospel because we are so happy that we trust in Jesus Christ? For the believers who may not have forgotten but who are holding on, is it strength that you receive when you hear about Jesus Christ and what he has done for you? Is, is this what it is that you respond when you, when you have a feeling? Because we should have some sort of response in our hearts when we hear the gospel. So often we hear it because it's so normative in our daily lives, hopefully, <laughs> or that we hear an exposition of the word of God here every Sunday that it may come dull or numb to it. I hope that is not the case for us at CRBC. I hope it is not the case when we hear of our sinfulness and the fact that God came down as a man to die for us dust and that doesn't do anything to us i hope that that is not the state that we're in today and if it is that god would move powerfully in our hearts even right now that some sort of emotion whether it be contrition joy peace or some sort of strength that something would stir in our hearts and in our minds when we reflect upon the grace of god towards us through our lord jesus christ this is the gospel and what is that exemplary response to this gospel to this gospel that says that Jesus Christ has come to die for sinners. What is it exactly um, that the Thessalonians did that was so exemplary? He spoke about their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. What is this work of faith? Just for clarity and theological accuracy, 
we understand that faith is not a work that is meritorious. Which is to say that just because you have faith, God is not obliged to save you. It is not a case where it is another work that if you check it off, then God would allow you to be generous and then you would be saved. So just to distinguish that from thinking of it as a work. Although we understand that it is not a work to merit our salvation, as it's not a work that we do that God says, well, you did this, so now I would save you. We still need to understand that the reason why Paul could have commended them for their work of faith is because they did exert something. They did do something that was exemplary. They did do something that was worthy of commendation. So though we understand it's not a work that saves us, there is something that we must do that, that, that should be seen by others that is something to be said, well, that is a good thing. Labor of love. Faith works by love. Now this, we would have heard about, you know, filial, um, eros, yeah, so looking at the theologians out there, eros and agape, the word agape was used here. I think we'd have done a study on this before, but agape is an everlasting love. It is a love that is received first by God. The only person in the Bible that is spoken of that gives love in and of himself is God. Everybody else responds to something. The only person that gives love in a manner that is not for anything besides what is within themselves is God. We all are responsive. So this is the type of love that the Thessalonians had, the responsive love towards God. And lastly, steadfast patience or hope. This is not a passive acquiescence, but an active manly endurance, a confident expectation, not an, un, sorry, not an unfounded optimism. The type of hope that the Thessalonians had was not just, you know, well, shut your eyes and hoping for the best, a credulity that many people equate to the type of hope that Christians have. We have a, an enduring hope, a hope that is reflected in the way that we live. And we're going to get to that later on. I am going through these seemingly quickly, but I can get to the application of what it looks like a little bit, just to give a definition of these things. If we were supposed to look at all three of them together, um, Leon Morris speaks about how all of these things should basically look at it as the whole of the Christian life. Uh, the faith that we have, the love that we have, the type of hope that we have, this just encompasses the whole of the Christian life. And this is me, so you can quote this. <laughs> Having put faith in the gospel, that faith is mobilized by love and is directed, and its direction is guided by and oriented toward our hope of eternal life and union with Christ. And repeat that again. Having put faith in the gospel, that faith is mobilized by love, and its direction is guided by and oriented toward our hope of eternal life and union with Christ. So what does this look like exactly? What examples in this passage we were given of the exemplary response, this labor of love, this work of faith, this steadfast hope? I'm going to go in the same pattern that Paul, that Paul did in this, in this. I'm going to use the same pattern he used and in doing the study and thinking about how we should do it, I, I found that it was, it was done well. Like we can get to that now. I'm excited about it. <laughs> so the first thing that we see in chapter, in, sorry, in verses 6, we see how he spoke about how they were imitators of him and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you became imitators of us, being Paul, Savannah, and Timothy, and of the Lord, for you received the word in, a, in much affliction. And within the very context here, the focal point was affliction. They imitated Paul and the other, the, his, his compatriots, in that when they were afflicted, they did so joyfully. They reflected the Lord in that they, they were able to endure affliction in a joyful way. 
Now, we in Barbados currently, by God's grace, have not been in a position like the Thessalonian church or like many of our brothers and sisters currently in modern day, probably in the East, who suffer serious physical persecution and, and harm. But there is a lot of social capital being... There's a lot of social capital that we no longer have because we are Christians in the West now. Once before, where being a Christian was normative, and that was something that everybody looked towards and it was a nice thing. We are coming to a place where social ostracization and marginalization, which we currently do suffer in the West, is not going to be the only thing that we suffer. We can see like places in Norway and other places where people's children are being taken away because of so-called Christian radicalization. So we currently don't deal with this, but we need to be mindful of our brothers and sisters who do deal with it, and in our own hearts, when we, when we suffer something at work for our Christianity, like being honest, which is something that we do suffer from, whether it be not wanting to point out or being fearful of pointing out the issues and the handedness of our co-workers or when it is that we ourselves um, <laughs> may sometimes want to fall to it because of the environment. So we do um, have at CRBC the opportunity to reflect this as the Thessalonian church did, to be joyful in our afflictions. We have relationships with our families, even amongst ourselves, that sometimes are not the nicest. We have experiences with people that could cause us to be resentful, to be impatient, and to not reflect the type of joy that is necessary for us to have this example of response that the Thessalonians did. So I want us to think of our own lives. Obviously, we may not be able to um, relate to the Thessalonians in the sense that we don't know what it is to be burned by the sake or to be you know, put out of our homes. But when it is that we do, in a lesser sense, receive some type of affliction, that we should be joyful. That we should not be a murmuring people. We shouldn't be a people that, are, that is marked by complaining, that is marked by pointing at others and, and, and always mumbling. We should be marked by joy and peace. And that that should be seen among us in this church, that whether there be an affliction outside the church or within the church, that we have a joy and a peace and a grace about us, that others can say, this is something that is, that is commendable. Something else that is not directly found in this particular text, but in the book as a whole, is the love for one another. And this is another way that we can reflect and the, the sort of, or imitate Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the love for the church. We need to love one another, brothers. We need to have a distinct love for one another. It is something that even, I think, in the, in the epistle that John would have written, is a mark of what a believer is. One of the ways in which we mark ourselves as a believer is but the love that we have for the saints. So similitude, we at CRBC just seek to give some priority to the church. That when we think of our brothers and sisters, this isn't a priority that is 7th or 8th or 10th. But actively as we think about giving our time, giving our money, giving our emotional energy to, because having relationships and loving people is a tough emotional business but that our brothers and sisters would take some priority in it and i want to come back to the gospel again this is not simply motivated because we know that it's right to do but remember the gospel remember what was done for you remember that jesus christ loved you enough to die on the cross this should be motivation enough to love somebody else we need to be stirred in our hearts to love one another brothers and sisters we need to be stirred in our hearts to do this I want to remind us as well, as seen in verses 7, that all this was done not from a church that was considered mature. Or when I say mature, rather, considered old. It was not as if Paul was there for months and this was 10 years after that they were being given this commendation. He was there a few months 
And yet these people still responded in a manner that was commendable. And this is perfect for our church because we were only here for a year and a month. This should be an encouragement to us. Although we are a young church, although we have only been here for a short period of time, although most of us in here are very young, actually, it doesn't exempt us from the ability to live lives that reflect this exemplary response. We have no excuse. And why I thought that the context of this book having been written earliest is to understand that they were in a position that we are simply not in. They did not have a whole set of epistles circulating at that point to read and to be encouraged by. They were the one that people were being encouraged by. So how much more us that have the whole six, all 66 books? Every epistle. We have every single resource necessary. And with all the information out there that we can have for theological clarity, all the creeds and synods and everything that was done in church history, all the suffering that was had by our brothers and sisters in the past, we at CRBC have no excuse not to have the ability to respond in the gospel in a powerful way in Barbados, to reflect such a response that could impact the ones around us. Let's read from 7. It says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This is a powerful testimony that a young church being raptured by the gospel, being moved by the gospel, not by anything else, could respond in such a manner that it went every single where and encouraged every single one. It is not far-fetched. It is not far-fetched at all. And coming on to the last two points, which I, which I was excited about, because in my first thinking, I, I was saying that when we experience salvation, usually we think about this, you know, repenting of our idols first and everything else, which is true. You can't, you can't believe in Christ unless you repent and turn away from the idols. But let's, let's read the part afterwards where, after 7, which we just read, it says, For not only has the, Lord, the, word, of, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia, Nakaya, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to, to God from idols to serve the living God, the living and true God. And this was interesting to me. The thing that went out to the other churches wasn't simply that the Thessalonian church suffered and was afflicted in similitude to the apostles and that they bore up under it in an admirable fashion. The thing that went out was the fact that they turned away from idols. You understand that? It is not the, the word that came to everybody else. I mean, all the churches would have had to repent of sin and would have had to turn away from idols as well. But it was a thing. They received the word and it was commendable that they did this. So we're going to point out the obvious first. The obvious is still important though. As Christians, we all need to repent of sin. We need to repent of the idols in our hearts. As Christians, we should have repented and should continue to repent of lust from our sexual desires and thinking that it should be expressed outside of marriage and even inside of marriage where men and women could fall to pornography or other things. We need to repent of our materialism, of building up things more than God. We need to repent of, of our ideologies that lift themselves above God as the major way of thinking, as our point of reference, that the authority of God is not the thing that we think about but our own feelings and opinions. These are things that should be obvious to us, things that we should all say 
yeah, amen to when it comes to our repentance, but we still often fall into them. We still often put our careers, our relationships with our spouses, our sexual desires, our desire for food. <laughs> we put many things above God. But something that I want to also point out in this idolatry, which may or may not be applicable to us in some way for the, 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 the people who are more, more spiritual, <laughs> the people who think of themselves as a little more moral, we need to repent of the idolatry of, of thinking of ourselves as spiritual and as righteous. Many of us here would have gotten past cursing people out. Um, some of us here think that we, <laughs> some of us here may think that we've gotten past, I can say may think, I've gotten past sexual immorality. But we have an idol in our hearts about being seen as spiritual. We idolize the reputation that is gotten in our circle of spirituality of being holy, righteous, pietous people. Pious people, not pietous. <laughs> we do. We have an idol in our heart, something that is good. Piety is a good thing. Being holy is a good thing. Being a good father, being a good husband, being a good spouse, a good son, a good daughter. These are things that we can still hold up as idols before God. They're sneaky idols. Things that we see are good, so often we don't think to root out. But we need to be aware of these things because obviously there was something distinctive about this church that everybody's life or most people, because obviously we, we, we don't assume that every single person was this, but it was to such a degree that the church itself was marked as exemplary. That so many people within the church as a body looked this way that the church could have been said to have been an exemplary church. So we need to look in our hearts. We need to, in our minds, be honest. Whether it be the things that may seem more obvious, like lust, like covetousness, like career and money, we need to repent of those things as well. But even the things that are good, that we can still elevate above God. The way that we perform in front of others. The way that our spouses think of us. The way that our workmates think of us. The way that we execute our duties in excellence. And we love the smiles and the commendation of others. These things can be idols and need not be spoken or heard among us at CRBC. We need to be a people that are marked simply by the love of Jesus Christ. That is what was exemplary. It is not simply that the people did things, which are, which are good things, but there was something about the, the heart motivations that could have been so manifestly seen that Paul could have said it was an exemplary response. We need to want this type of heart. We need to want these type of motivations to be the reasons for our behavior, not simply doing it externally, but when we are alone by ourselves, that our hearts honestly love Jesus Christ. Our hearts are really honestly moved by the gospel. Finally, waiting in hope of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 10. And to wait for, which was connected to verses 9, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Thessalonians had a hope. Not a temporal hope that was grounded on the earth. Not a, a hope that was 70 years and a few. An eternal hope. A hope that was much weightier than the temporal needs and concerns of right here on earth. They had something much more weighty to look forward to. Their union with Jesus Christ. 
lifestyles that reflect that our hearts are not grounded on the earth is necessary. And we can tell when somebody's when somebody has all their, you know, their what is the term? All their eggs in this basket or all their betting on this life. I can't remember the, the term that because what casino people is use. Eggs in the basket, but which, um, the, the thing that well, we don't sure know about gambling. But um basically we're putting all your money on this. They put all their bets, all their checks, or their whatever you call it, on this. It is seen by our conversations. It is seen by our priorities. What it is that, that people hear you conversing about most or concerned about most. Whenever you have a conversation with your brothers and sisters in Christ or those at your workplace, is it about your wife, your husband, the new investment, the money you make, the promotion? When it is that people look at your priorities, is it in saving up so you can get a, get a, a better house or a house at all, a nicer car? Uh, a long vacation the Thessalonians lived in such a manner that the hope that they had in Jesus Christ was manifestly seen they lived a life that seemed as if it wasn't all about here for some reason people can look from the outside and recognize that these people are living for, for the earth alone are at all could this be said of us now and if not what must we do to, 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 to change to look like this my hope, brothers and sisters, is that we at CRBC, in response to the gospel, and only because of the gospel, and I know that I've repeated this many times, but it is necessary, only because of the gospel, not because of our intellectual, reformed thinking, not because of our accuracy in theology, not because of our moral piety, not because of our ability to have a proper biblical worldview and to stand up against falsehoods and ideologies which are all beautiful things that are good things but a major motivation should be Jesus Christ and this for me personally and I hope for you as well is something that could often be missed out and all of our striving against sin and all of our work for the sake of the gospel for the sake of the church ministry could be idle piety could be idle you know righteousness could be idle and we often forget is a relationship and a person that motivates us or should be our motivation so I want to remind us again that Jesus Christ is our motivation for all the things that we do. I want to remind us that the overt idols that we would all say yes and amen to, like lust and covetousness and money and the world, as it were, should be idols that we repent and we rip out from our hearts, as well as those things that are good in themselves, like family and marriage and ministry and, and righteousness. But two could become idols and off-center. That CRBC would not be the Reformed Church... CRBC would not be the, the, the good theological church or the smart church or the chosen obedient church <laughs> or the chosen smart church, but the Jesus Christ is Lord above all church. And that because of this, our lifestyle reflects in our prioritizing the gospel work and ministry, prioritizing our brothers and sisters in Christ, that the outside world that the churches around us and that the world as well would see that this little church loves Christ and that there's something unique about it. A change that would be so great to see in Barbados. Not saying that there are not any other churches out there. Of course there are. We pray for them often. And we hope that other churches spring up that reflect the Thessalonian church as well. But I am here and I'm hoping that we are. 
So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we need to have this work of faith. We need to labor in love. And we need to have that manly, steadfast hope, that hope that endures. We need to have that hope that look towards Jesus Christ, that hope that rests not upon the temporal, but upon the eternal. I would have hoped in repeating over and over again for those who are not saved the gospel that you would repent and believe upon this Christ. That you would trust that when the Bible speaks of those who were chosen, it is you. That you would trust that when we think about or when we hear about the wrath that Christ would have borne, that that is the wrath that was born for you. That there is a faith that you want to rest upon in this Jesus Christ alone, not trusting in the world, not trusting in your own righteousness, but in Jesus Christ alone. Then to reflect this response as you join a gospel-believing church. Reflect this love, reflect this faith, reflect this hope. So again, I call us, I challenge us, as a body, not simply as individuals, to hold each other accountable to be this. That the weak among us would not be left behind. That the strong would not be idolaters of themselves and their performance. That we would care enough for the spreading of the gospel and for the health of the church to mature and to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. To do something that would cause this church to be seen as such. We need to hold one another accountable. We need to be on our knees in intercession. We need to call one another. We need to give to one another time and patience when they're difficult. We need to confront one another's sin. We need to forbear one another's sin. And above all, we need to reflect a love for Jesus Christ that would encourage one another. So these things I ask for us to do in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.